<clears throat> there were a few questions by notes, and then you can also just take uh, <clears throat> questions this evening. The first one uh, was about karma and speech. Divisive, undermining, gossipy speech is an unwholesome karma, bringing the speaker painful results. <coughs> is it also an unwholesome karma if you participate in such a conversation as a listener, not speaking yourself, but listening and not objecting? How do you handle situations, such situations? Well, I think the karma of that situation would be whether you're enjoying it or not. <laughs> Which actually <coughs> goes right to the point of understanding uh, the, the power of karma as coming from motivation. <coughs> You know, and it's really a um, it's a reminder for us in all kinds of situations, whether <coughs> when we're talking or simply when we're listening to other people talk or in any other situation, uh, it's its own practice to as much as possible, check in with our motivation, what's going on in the mind. One of the uh, teachings of the Buddha on right speech, which is very simple, uh, but I feel encapsulates so much, if we could just practice it. Uh, and it would refer also to this question of how we're listening to conversations. He said, is what we're doing, either through our speech or in our minds, bringing people together or pushing them apart? You know, just, just such a simple reflection. Is what we're doing, and it could be extrapolated not only from speech, but from all our actions, you know, vis-a-vis -vis our relationships with other people, <clears throat> is the motivation to bring people together, to harmonize people? Or is our motivation in what we're doing to cause divisiveness? I mean, just imagine if we all, or people in the world, practiced just that. It would be huge. Uh, and so <clears throat> I find that a very useful reflection, and it uh, illuminates very often uh, perhaps more uh, unnoticed aspects of our minds and motivations, if we use that reflection. <clears throat> okay, so now there were a few questions, uh, all on the same topic, and the response is going to involve a mini Dharma talk, because it's really a question that goes to some of the profoundest aspects of our practice and teachings. <clears throat> so I'll read a few of the questions. What could be helpful for the non-identification with the knowing in the open awareness practice? I sometimes ask the question, who is knowing? Is there anything else? 
Can you explain how consciousness is not the self? And what techniques, methods would you recommend to see that? So again, all of this is about understanding consciousness, knowing, awareness. Could you speak of the aggregate of consciousness and is it different from awareness? Is awareness our true abiding or even that is just another <clears throat> phenomena to not cling to? Okay, so this is, uh, this is a major topic. And the reason that it's really a very subtle question to examine is that with almost every other object of our experience, uh, it's not too difficult uh, to see uh, its impermanence. You know, certainly with sounds or different sensations or thoughts or emotions, or even more amorphous things like moods, you know, or sights or smells. If we're paying attention, we will see pretty clearly that they're all arising and passing away at some point. Sometimes we see that impermanence on a very momentary level. Sometimes it may have a longer arc in our experience. But the impermanence of phenomena is relatively clear. With respect to consciousness, to knowing, it's not that clear and it's not that obvious. You know, it often feels as if the knowing or consciousness or awareness is like a field, you know, and we're not actually seeing it arising and passing away and maybe it's more a sense of things arising within it. And so it's very easy to unknowingly be identified with consciousness, with this knowing as being self, as being I. It's, it's as if we make a home for the self in awareness. And this is very hard to see. It's hard to see that we're doing it and it's hard to see how to cut through it. So I want to just offer a few uh, you could say techniques or methods or ways I've explored over the years, over many years of practice, uh, of how to cut through the identification with knowing. To see that knowing itself is impersonal, not I, not self. You know, and the importance of this is highlighted in one teachings of the one teaching of the Buddha, uh, where he says, <coughs> "Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine." Now it doesn't say nothing whatsoever except knowing, <laughs> or nothing whatsoever except awareness. It's nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Okay, so how can we begin to disentangle you know, ourselves from the identification 
mostly unconscious. We're not even aware that we're identified with it, but there is that felt sense of ourselves being the one who knows. We are the ones who are knowing things change. We're the the ones who are the subject of all experience. Okay, so there are a few different approaches and (coughs) these different approaches have been highlighted in different of the Buddhist traditions. So there are many avenues into this. In the classical teachings of Vipassana, especially uh, in Burma, uh, where it really mm, outlines in quite a bit of detail the whole unfolding path of insight, The, the foundational insights, which kind of get the whole thing going, the first one, which we've all been practicing, called you know, different stages of purification, purification of conduct. And so that basically means uh, following the precepts, non-harming. So we've all accomplished that, at least while we're here. The second stage of purification is called purification of mind. And this has to do with simply establishing enough steadiness of mind so that we're not simply continually lost in papancha, in the proliferation of our thoughts. And you've all undoubtedly experienced this, at least for periods of time. Very often there's a lot of thinking and wandering mind, but probably all of you, at some point, for some periods of time, have experienced a mind that is more collected, a little steadier, is not so lost in what's happening. So this is called purity of mind. The next stage of purity is where it begins to get interesting with respect to this understanding of selflessness. And this is called purification of view. So we're actually purifying our understanding. Now what this means is that we begin to see that in any moment of experience, two things are happening. There's the object of consciousness. And as I've said before, the Buddha mentioned regardless of how complex and complicated we think our lives are, only six things are ever happening. It's only a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, or some object of mind, and the knowing of them. So in this purification of view, we begin to see that in every moment of experience, when we drop back into the actuality of what's happening in that moment, we see that there's knowing and some object. And that's all that's there. So in in the Pali, it's nama rupa. All that's happening is mind and physical uh, phenomena. So as we're paying attention and Vipassana Um, really highlights this insight. And 
the noting at different times can actually be a help to highlight it. Because if we take some time and we're just noting moment after moment what's happening, you know, hearing, seeing, sensing, touching, smelling, thinking, seeing, hearing, whatever, just moment after moment we're seeing a new object appear and we begin to understand that in that moment there's the object and the knowing of the object. So what we call life is really a pairwise progression of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. When we get get out of our story of life and actually drop into, I don't know if I'm using this word correctly or not, but I'll use it and then leave me a note if it's not correct. (laughs) But if if we drop, (laughs) if we drop into the phenomenology of life, does that make sense? <laughs> anyway, I think you know what I mean. You know, when we drop out of our interpretation and our stories and we just see what actually is happening in any moment, there's knowing and an object. And we begin to see that that knowing and object is just arising and passing away, arising and passing away, arising and passing away. So this is the purification of view. And it's the first sense, the first understanding of the selfless nature of it all. That the object is not self and the knowing of the object is not self. They're just arisings and passing, arising and passing moment after moment. As (coughs) the practice continues, There are times when the perception gets so refined that we see this arising and passing of this pairwise progression, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. We can see it arising and passing very quickly. You know, so it's many, many times a moment we're seeing this pair arise and pass, arise and pass, arise and pass. And sometimes we go through some stages where we're really just seeing it all pass away. You know, that, that's the aspect of experience that becomes predominant. So it's just passing, 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 passing. Both the consciousness and the object. And so in all of these experiences, <coughs> we're actually seeing the impermanent nature of consciousness. We're seeing it arise and pass, arise and pass, and sometimes just dissolving, dissolving, dissolving. So we see that there is nothing there that actually lasts long enough to be called self. Because it's all momentary, this whole process is arising and passing very quickly. Okay, so this is one way, this is one avenue of understanding the selfless nature of knowing (coughs) because we're seeing its impermanence. Another way. So I'm going to just go through a a little list of different ways of experiencing this. Another way, it, it actually came to me from reading a biography of Einstein. 
I actually can't remember whether I mentioned this in the whole, but I'll repeat it anyway. Um, so it's very interesting for me, just, you know, it's brilliant, genius mind. But what, what really struck me was that all of his great discoveries and insights and understandings uh, came about through thought experiments. Right? He wasn't doing experiments in the laboratory. He was just, he had the capacity of mind to think in a certain way, you know, in a rev- revolutionary ways, that just opened up huge insights into the nature of things. So it made me appreciate one of the skillful uses of thought and thought experiment, which may be welcome news to you since (laughs) most of our thoughts do not lead to E equal MZ squared. (laughs) But, But I want to offer one little thought experiment that actually it's not quite at that level, but <laughs> I found really interesting. And it has to do with understanding the conditioned nature of consciousness. So according to the teachings, and I'll just use seeing as an example, but it could be any of the sense, it could be hearing or tasting. So according to the teachings, seeing consciousness arises when four conditions are present. Okay, there has to be the working, the eye in a working order. There has to be light. There has to be attention. And there has to be something coming in front of our field of vision. And so it said, if these four conditions are there, there will be a moment of seeing consciousness. So I was walking in the loop one day on retreat, and I was just reflecting on this. And I made the little experiment. This, this was a thought experiment. Okay, these four conditions. I was seeing, you know, as I was walking around. And I remembered, oh yeah, for seeing consciousness, you need these four conditions. What would happen if I just took one of those conditions away? So that was the little thought experiment. Okay, if there were no eyes, would seeing consciousness be there? No. If there was no light, would seeing consciousness be there? And so just in the very moment, just in the very moment of kind of doing that mentally, taking one of the conditions away, it was almost like, it's almost like an intuitive connection with the fact that they would not be seeing in that moment. Is this making sense? And it's, it reveals so clearly, just by doing that, the conditioned nature of consciousness. That for consciousness to arise, conditions have to be present. And if the conditions are not there, and if any one of the conditions are not there, so then that consciousness doesn't arise. There's no seeing consciousness, there's no hearing, there's no smell. And so again, it reveals from another angle the selfless nature of knowing. It's not that there's a self in there who just knows inherently. It's a phenomena arising out of conditions. 
So when we see its conditioned nature, again, it just cuts through the sense of identification with it as being self. It has nothing to do with self. And in fact, there's no self for whom it could have anything to do with. (laughs) That was a little subtle. (laughs) Okay, so (laughs) first it's seeing just the you know, it, through, the pra- through the practice, at times seeing that our, the flow of experience is simply this pairwise progression, knowing an object, knowing an object. When you're breathing in, there's a sensation of the in-breath and the knowing of it. Out-breath and the knowing of it. Sound, knowing of it. Sensation, knowing of it. Moment after moment. This pairwise progression is unfolding. Another way is seeing the conditioned nature of consciousness, that it arises out of conditions. Also not I, not self. Okay, so now we'll go to how it's explained more often in some of the other Buddhist traditions. And this, reflects more that perception of awareness or mindfulness or knowing as a field rather than as a momentary arising and passing. And I think it's not helpful to get into a discussion of the metaphysics of this. I think it's more like an understanding of how light can be experienced either as a wave or a particle. And you can't say, you can't say it's either because it's just a question of how it's experienced at different times under different conditions. So at those times when we are experiencing the knowing as a field. And it's not to say it is a field, but sometimes it's being experienced that way. How can we cut through the identification with the knowing at that time? So in a lot of uh, traditions, and we find this teaching in Zen, we find it in the Tibetan teachings, And it's one that I found really helpful. And that is, well, I'll I'll remind you of, of a little Zen dialogue, which I think I did mention earlier in the retreat, but it points to this way of cutting through. You know, Bodhidharma, being who brought Buddhism from India to China. You know, he was this fierce old guy and Zen guy sitting in a cave for nine years. And this other man who became his, finally became his disciple, came to Bodhidharma in a cave and said, you know, I'm suffering so much, please pacify my mind. And at first Bodhidharma just ignored him. And it's snowing out and the guy's standing out in the snow for three days and Bodhidharma's still ignoring him. And then this little gruesome part of the legend. Uh, So the guy cuts off his arm to demonstrate his 
sincerity. How sincere are you <laughs> in your practice? <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> that that is that is an ascetic discipline. We don't need to <laughs> go for, and it's, it's the legend. Who knows? So finally, Bodhidharma comes out. You know, he was impressed. <laughs> and the guy says, "You know, I'm suffering so much. Please pacify my mind." Yeah, and obviously he was. I mean, he was hugely uh, sincere and motivated and suffering a lot. And so, as the dialogue goes, Bodhidharma says, "Well, show me your mind, and I'll pacify it." And the guy says, "I've looked for it everywhere, and I can't find it." So this is an important, this is really an important teaching point. I've looked for it and I can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, there it's already pacified. So this is yet another way of understanding the non-self nature of the knowing mind. It's the looking for it and see, there's nothing to find. And yet the knowing is happening. And this is what's so, this is <clears throat> what I find one of the most miraculous aspects of our lives and our practice and the nature of consciousness, the nature of awareness. There's nothing to find and yet the knowing is happening. You know, and so just an interesting experiment, and this might work for some of you and not for others, so all of this is just, they're just different ways of exploring this question. I find it uh, quite accessible uh, when I'm sitting and maybe, you know, there'll be sounds arising, and in the moment of hearing, Sometimes I'll just ask myself the question, <coughs> can I find what's knowing the hearing? So it's a very present moment investigation. It's not from memory. It's in the very moment of hearing something and then turning the attention, okay, can I find what's knowing it? And we see there's nothing to find. And as one great Tibetan teacher said, the not finding is the finding. That's what's to find, that there is nothing to find. You know, and so in that experience, we begin to see, exp uh, understand the empty nature. This is one of the meanings of emptiness, that there's nothing to find the empty nature of knowing. And again, this cuts through any sense of identification, you know, of self, of I, because there's nothing there to find. There's no place to land.
So I think just one more, one more thing about this. Remembering the earlier teaching, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. And so even if we have this notion of resting in awareness, you know, as, as many traditions, that, that, that's the language they use. We need to be careful that we don't become identified or we don't identify with awareness itself because that's just another kind of clinging. And Tilgo Kensei Rinpoche, who was one of the great Dzogchen masters of the last century, he said, awareness basically means freedom from clinging. If there is clinging, it is not awareness. And so I find that just a very helpful uh, reminder uh, to check, to check the quality of the mind and to see that the bottom line of all our practice and all of these different techniques, you know, and all the instructions that you've heard and everything you're doing in the practice is all in the service of non-clinging. Because the Buddha said very specifically, liberation through non-clinging. That's what we're practicing. But we need to hear that so often because it is so easy and we've all done it countless times undertaking our practice for some experience, for some better experience. You know, and there are there are things to cultivate, but it's cultivating them all in the service of not clinging of not holding on, that's where the freedom is. And we can experience that in any moment. Okay, that's mini Dharma talk. <laughs> any questions <laughs> about anything? Since then, uh, since like then the problem is memory. It's a memory that is not just utilitarian memory, it's practically just, just a memory mm-hmm. that constructs. Then, what do we do? It's, it's just a thought, it's just a, a part of aggregates. Okay, so the, que- the question was, uh, the problem seems to be memory, or, and, yeah. and just the whole process of memory, and does, um, um, extrapolating now a little bit, doesn't that seem to suggest a self, right, who, who has these memories? And you have different memories than I have, presumably. Okay, going back to that model of just the process is the pairwise progression of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. So it's just a process unfolding. But it's not unfolding chaotically, and it's not unfolding randomly, it's unfolding lawfully. And so, you know, we, as you know, has been mentioned, uh, 
you plant an apple seed and you watch all the transformations until it becomes a tree and bears fruit, the fruit it bears is not a mango. It's an apple because the process is happening according to certain laws. So whether they're laws of nature, physical nature, or laws of the mind. So each moment of consciousness is actually conditioning the next, imprinting the next, imprinting the next. And so memory is one of the functions, you know, or characteristics of the mind, of particular mental factors. And so there can be the carrying of memory, you know, throughout a lifetime. But moment after moment, it's still a moment of consciousness arising and passing, conditioning the next in a certain way. So we're all, don't take this image too literally, but it's like we're all streams of consciousness, you know, unfolding. Now it gets a little bit interesting. when we consider that there are some beings who have developed their minds to a great capacity, and this, you need not believe this, but as my teacher Munindraji would say in talking about some of this stuff, you don't have to believe it. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. (laughs) So he would say that a lot. (laughs) But there are beings who actually can know other people's minds. Yeah. So then, then it's just an interesting question, okay, well, what are the boundaries? And, but since I'm not one of those people, um, I can't really say much about it. So basically, it's to see memory itself as a function, you know, arising and passing, but each conditioning the next moment. And just okay, this is this is a wrap, which I think is very helpful uh, A few of you have mentioned in interviews uh, that there have been occasional thoughts about the end of the retreat. <laughs> Maybe one or two. (laughs) So given that, you know, they occasionally come up, (laughs) it is a very powerful time to investigate the nature of time. You know, because most of us live our lives in the realm of time in past, in future, in present. One of the most freeing aspects, you know, for myself, in terms of understanding how this is all working, was seeing so clearly that the only way the the past or future is experienced is as a thought in the moment, or an image in the moment. It's not... I'm not talking about some metaphysical reality of past and future, I'm talking about how we experience it. Because we're always experiencing things just in the moment. And so you can have all those memories, 
and create, you know, a whole story, which we do, and, and sometimes it's useful. But actually what's arising, it's just a thought in the moment. And if we can see that, the thought itself is very light. The mind creation of past and future is really heavy. And we carry this burden through our lives. By seeing it as a thought in the moment, what it does, it gives us the freedom to then discern which of these thoughts really need to be responded to. Because a lot of information comes through them. You know, and so very often thoughts are arising of the past which are telling us something. And so we need to be free enough to see that and respond appropriately or thoughts of future, but what percentage of your thoughts would you say are useless? <laughs> it's a big, it's a big percentage. Not all, I mean, because some are useful and, and we need to use them. So it's just understanding, yeah, the, the past and the future, we're experiencing it as thoughts in the present, that gives us the inner space to just discern what do we act on, what don't we act on, what do we just let go of, it's much lighter. I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> so the quick comment was, you know, speaking of past and future, but what about what's the present? And when she's been looking for the present, she can't find the present, and it's just like things passing through. So this, <laughs> this is another great teaching. It's found in the Dhammapada. Um, okay, so this this could enlighten you all. <laughs> oh, get ready. <laughs> it's, it's really simple. Where the Buddha says, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and cross over to the further shore. Okay, so we have some idea of what it means, let go of the past, let go of the future. What does letting go of the present mean? And just dropping that instruction into our practice, as we're going along, whether it's in the walking or sitting, what it reveals is that unknowingly we are often attached, you know, fixated or sticking a little bit to the arising experience. You know, and so that's being attached to the present and just dropping that instruction and let go of the present, what I find as I do that, I can, I can actually feel the mind just drop back from a clinging to the present moment experience that I didn't even know was there. 
because so much of the instruction we hear, oh, be in the present, you know, and stay in the present, and don't get lost in the past, don't get lost in the future, be in the present. And here's the Buddha saying, let go of the present. So that's a great move, you know, and, and, and you might really work with it and just see what happens in your mind, just in the moment of reminding yourself to do that. You know, I, this is what I call the experience of, so I'll be, I'll be walking or sitting, and, okay, let go of the present. I can just feel a kind of instantaneous release from a kind of grabbing that it wasn't conscious to me. So I call that channel zero. You know, it's dropping back into channel zero. And then there really is the free flow of phenomena in, within that. Right? And we're, we're freeing ourselves from a very subtle kind of, just a, it's like a little, it's like a little Velcro mind. You know, it's just a little stickiness to the present. Uh, so then when we let go of the present, channel zero is good. <laughs> no commercials. <laughs> What are the symptoms of spiritual maturity? And what are some of the most supportive attitudes and approaches to retreat practice and cultivating? Hmm. I think there are certain analogies between uh, spiritual maturity and just maturity in general, you know. And for me, when I was read the question and was thinking a little bit about it, uh, so there were two qualities that just, you know, that just kind of popped into my mind with regard to it. And so I don't necessarily think this is the exhaustive response, but it's just what came to mind. Um, one of them is just equanimity. There's just more equanimity about things that are arising, and it comes from a lot of practice. You know, we've just seen all this stuff coming and going so much. And we have a very big time frame for our undertaking. I was just speaking, I think with somebody today or yesterday. You know, so often we have, you know, we come to a retreat, and especially a long retreat like this, and it's so easy to come either with very explicit expectations or underground expectations of 
not really getting it, or getting some place. And then when things don't unfold in quite the way we wanted them to, then we begin to feel discouraged, oh, this wasn't such a good retreat, or whatever. But in looking back over almost 50 years of doing retreats, you know, and short ones and long ones and a lot of them, Everything happens. You know, I've had whole retreats of months at a time that were total mental dukkha. Just terrible. Anguish. Worse than anything you've experienced. (laughs) And then the next retreat might be really easeful. You know, oh, the concentration, you know, is a lot stronger now. And then in the middle of an easeful retreat, I can have a sitting or a day where it feels like I've never practiced before. You know, just, what happened? And it's just, it's like everything happens. And a kind of spiritual maturity, which to some extent, you know, I've appreciated from all these years of practice, is that the mind just begins to not take all this so seriously. You know, it realizes that we go through a lot of different terrains and it keeps changing. And sometimes it's pleasant and sometimes it's unpleasant and sometimes it's a struggle and sometimes it's easeful. And our capacity just to be with it all with an increasingly equanimous mind, that really grows. And there's a huge amount of peace in that. You know, we're we're not so thrown by what it is that's arising, because we've just seen it so often, and we've gone through so many ups and downs. So I think, for me, that's uh, one aspect of a kind of spiritual maturity, you know, where, where there's just a lot of space for whatever it is that's happening, you know, without, without an expectation, oh, it should be this way now. Uh, because it almost never is, you know. It's, It's doing its own thing. It's following its own unfolding lawful process. So can we just be with it all? So the second aspect of what I see as a kind of spiritual maturity is that equanimity and just, this is fine. It's difficult, it's easy, it's just all part of life is the quality of perseverance. You know, the Dalai Lama said, yeah, I should have brought it with me. It has this one nice little piece of to never give up, never give up. Whatever's happening, never give up. <laughs> you know, work for peace in yourself, peace in the world, never give up. And he, so there's a kind of litany of that. And it's just a really beautiful quality, that, that quality that we know we're in this for the long haul, certainly for a lifetime and maybe for many lifetimes. You know, when we, when we have that attitude and that quality of, regardless of what's happening, you know, we're flying, we're crawling, we're suffering, we're in bliss, whatever's going on, we just keep walking. We just keep walking, you know. And if we understand that 
in all of it, what we're practicing is the mind of being aware of what's happening and not clinging. So through all the variations of experience, that can be the constant. We need to remind ourselves of that. So if there's that equanimity and that perseverance, then you know, the whole Dharma unfolds. And it unfolds with increasing balance and with increasing easefulness, even in the difficult times. You know, and I think that, that is you know, one of the signs of maturing spiritually. And we get challenged by it. You know, we, we do come up to our edges. And of course, when we're at an edge, that's a really interesting place to practice. Okay, things are really hard to be equanimous here. All right? This is whether it's physically or emotionally or but that edge is exactly where we want to be. Because that's the place for growth in equanimity. We we learn to, you know, find our way into some kind of ability to relax at whatever that edge is. Okay, can I be with this huge fear? Okay, fear's okay, I can be with this, you know, or rage, big, big, powerful storm of emotion. Can I be with this? You know, or blissful, loving feelings. Can I just be with that? And so this is how our mind uh, opens. No, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> okay, as we get more of a bit, an ability to have some space in the mind with regard to seeing thoughts as thoughts, and there's a little more spacious, and then trying to have some discernment which ones to act on, which ones not to act on. It first, how do we know? You know, how do we make that discernment? And then, how long do we stay? And he was speaking specifically of some interpersonal uh, relationships. Again, this is something I mentioned earlier, and and it needs to be repeated again and again because we forget. Uh, I would look at the motivation associated with the thought. What's what's driving it? Is it greed? Is it selfishness? Is it compassion? Is it wisdom? Is it, you know? And sometimes it'll be clear, and sometimes it won't be clear. And maybe sometimes it'll be a mix. Of things, but you want to at least take a first look and say, okay, what's the what's the predominant flavor in the mind with respect to that thought and potential action? 
So you want to check out the motivation. Sometimes even when the motivation is good, you know, suppose we're having an interpersonal difficulty. Just suppose. (laughs) And we have really good motivation and we just want to clear it up. You know, we want to engage in communication and... But that kind of communication takes two. You know, and so the other person needs to be willing and wanting to engage in it. And so, in some way, that's the first question to ask. You know, I'm feeling this difficulty, can we talk about it? And maybe they'll say no. Maybe they'll say, no, I'm I'm done with this, or whatever it may be. So then to keep pushing doesn't make sense. It's not a skillful thing to do. Then it's, okay, you've, you've done your part, that's it. And then come back to a place of rest and the ability to let go. So it's always bringing wisdom, you know, with respect to seeing the motivation and seeing the effectiveness of the engagement. When it ceases to be effective, there's no point in pushing the river. So the role of relaxation in the practice and how to cultivate it skillfully, it has a huge role, you know, and I, I think we, we don't emphasize it enough. Um, and there is, so there is some different ways to, to cultivate it. First, it's to remember that it's important, right? which we often forget. We can get so caught up in the efforting that we're not even paying attention to the quality of our effort, right? And so we can be getting really tight and not, not remembering that it's important. Okay, just relax, settle back, let things unfold by themselves. So one way would be, you know, very simple going through the body going through the body, scanning the body, and, and, and re- relaxing as best as possible each part. You know, so you do a body scan. It's very interesting. You know, for almost everybody uh, in meditation, for some reason, our eyes get engaged with the process of being mindful. You know, and so as we're being mindful of different experiences in the body, notice how often the eyes in some way or another are tightening or inwardly looking. But the eyes have nothing to do with that process of inner awareness, right? So this kind of body scan, or so relaxing the eyes. I notice very often in sitting, the jaw, you know, unknowingly will tighten. Or the tongue will get a little tense. So we go through and we just relax the body. That's one way. 
one of the factors of enlightenment, which is uh, very underrated and not spoken much about uh, is calm. You know, and calm comes between rapture and concentration. And these two are kind of a sexy, you know, we're talking, yeah, rapture and you know, all this energy and feel very alive and concentrate, yeah, that stillness, that deepness. So we go for the rapture, we go for the concentration but actually calm, first of all, it is a beautiful quality of mind and one which for most of us in the West is sorely lacking, you know, because we don't have a very calm culture. And I remember in practicing in Asia, there were often cautions about calm you know, you know, don't get too attached to the calm. Well, that might have been okay in Asia, where people perhaps are more calm. <laughs> I don't think we have to worry right away about getting too attached to calm. You know, it would be a really good thing to develop, and it is a factor of awakening. This, this is an important part of the recipe. And it's very interesting in the Satipatthana Sutta, right in the beginning instructions, and the instructions on how to be with the breath, you know, and you may know that there are the four steps of just knowing you're breathing in and out, knowing whether it's long or short, being with the entire breath, and then the last of the instructions is breathing in, calming the formations, meaning the whole mind and body, breathing out, calming the formations. And so when I read this uh, at one point, I just started experimenting with how to put that into practice. You know, because this, this is the Buddha saying, do this. You know? And so one of the ways I was playing with it, and you know, you can try and say, I would just spend some time when I was with the breath, feeling the breath, and I would simply repeat that phrase in the mind with each in-breath, I would say, calming, calming the breath. Out-breath, calming the breath, calming the formations, and saying it in a calm tone of voice. <laughs> calm the breath. <laughs> <laughs> and it was amazing, just by calling it to mind and using the phrase, and oh yeah, calming, it had a calming effect, and I could feel the calm getting strengthened in the mind. So that's another way you know, of actually practicing it. A third way, which I've mentioned in the hall uh, often, but it's a very good uh, practice, the opposite of calm in movement is rushing. You know, where we're just a little bit ahead of ourselves and our energy is toppling forward. Pay attention to that feeling because it's, it's easily noticeable. You know, so just wa keep an eye out through the day of when we feel like we're rushing and then in that very moment, oh, settle back, calming the body. You know, and as soon as you settle back, you can feel a kind of calm. So in, in all these ways, that relaxation uh, is really important and in fact it becomes the basis for concentration. An agitated mind, very difficult to concentrate. 
calm mind, very simple. Okay, I just, there's, there's a lot. I mean, there are a lot of questions. And I think we should end. Is, is it urgent? Calm the formations. But you, you could use that word, or you could just say, you could just say calming, or you could just say calming the breath. Experiment, you know, and just knowing that it's a useful or an important quality to cultivate. Because I just want to close. This is this is uh, just a little teaching from uh, the great Tibetan teacher Atisha. It's just kind of a, uh, well, you'll hear what it is. (laughs) The greatest achievement is selflessness. The greatest worth is self-mastery. The greatest quality is seeking to serve others. The greatest precept is continual awareness. The greatest medicine is the emptiness of everything. The greatest action is not conforming with the world's ways. The greatest magic is transmuting the passions. The greatest generosity is non-attachment. The greatest goodness is a peaceful mind. The greatest patience is humility. The greatest effort is not concerned with results. The greatest meditation is a mind that lets go. The greatest wisdom is seeing through appearances. So I'll post this just. Uh, But what I really love about this and hope it inspires you is that all of these things are exactly what we're doing here. These are all the things that we're cultivating, you know, in these weeks of practice. Let's just sit for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.